I begin by reading the words of Hussein Abdul Hussein, an Iraqi Lebanese American journalist and research analyst with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Quote, Hamas does not respect the value of human life whatsoever, and its first massacre started by killing 450 Palestinians from Fatah and the Palestinian Authority in 2007 when it took over the Gaza Strip. So, an organization that's willing to kill 450 Palestinians does not care about 1,400 Israelis or another 200 Israelis and foreigners taken as hostages. Hamas is a death cult. Closed quote. Hussein Abdul Hussein lived in Saddam Hussein's Iraq and Lebanon until his early 20s and has been published in major media worldwide, including the New York Times. You may have seen him on television in recent days. He speaks today with State of Tel Aviv about the different camps within the Arab world, which is anything but a monolith. He explains what must be understood globally to respond effectively to this war on the West. There is a moderate camp of Arab nations and various proxies, and hardliner Islamists like Hamas and Hezbollah that are aligned with Iran. Hussein provides context for the wave of violent support in the West, supporting Hamas and advocating for the destruction of Israel. Please listen to Hussein. His knowledge is peerless, and he is a fearless truth teller. Listen. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel and currently residing much of the time in the state of Tel Aviv. The Federation for Defense of Democracies is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank founded by Canadian and now also American lawyer Mark Dubowitz. This foundation advocates relentlessly in support of exposing dictatorship and lies with a particular focus on the Middle East. Stay with us. Hussein Abdul Hussein, thank you so much for making time to speak today with the state of Tel Aviv. Please, you're not a household name yet. You will be very soon. You should be. Tell our listeners who you are, where you're from, and what you do today before we get into discussing what's going on in the media in the Middle East. Thanks for having me on. First of all, I am half Iraqi, half Lebanese. Uh, I spent uh, time growing up in these two countries, and I moved to the United States almost 20 years ago. I've been living here uh, since. While in Lebanon, I studied history and archaeology at the American University of Beirut and then worked for the Daily Star, which was a daily newspaper. Now it's, it's shut down because of the economy and everything that's going on in Lebanon. Then I moved from, from Lebanon to work as a journalist here. And a few years ago, I gave up on journalism and I've been a think tanker since, which is not a, a different job, just a, a few different tasks. Just tell us a little bit about FDD, which was, of course, founded by a Canadian who moved down to Washington, D.C. after 9-11 because he felt this was the time to stand up and step up and speak out. Thank you, Mark Dubowitz, for everything you do and your team every day. But back to you. Well, FDD and I have been pushing in the same direction ever since they were founded and ever since I moved to this country. 
When I lived in Lebanon, I parted ways with many Lebanese friends when the war on Iraq was about to uh, break out. And my line of argument was that if any power topples a dictator as brutal as Saddam Hussein, and of course, me being half Iraqi and having lived under Saddam, there's no way that I'll say no. If anyone promises to uh, spread democracy uh, in Iraq, I'll be the first to support that effort. And this is where FDD and I cross paths because FDD clearly supports spreading of democracy. And lo and behold, 15 years later, we joined forces. We've been pushing in the same direction. We support liberty and, and freedom and the spreading of democracy. Now, this does not always go the way we want it to go. So we, of course, would have wanted the Iraq experiment to succeed in a better way. It didn't. There are so many things that we think can improve uh, and they have not improved as we want them to. But that does not stop us from saying what should be right. There's always this dilemma of what is ideal and what can work. And this is a dilemma for governments, for policy buffs like ourselves, people invested in foreign policy. And what we try to do is just to bring these together, just try to make the best out of what we have to get to the ideal that we think should be. Let's come down from the clouds, okay? Okay. Because I hear you and I'm in your world, but right now we're on the ground. We're in the trenches. And you have been extraordinarily active in social media and in mainstream media speaking out. What's your message, Hussein? My message is that the Arab nations, myself included, spent a long time blaming others for our own ills. That's my first and foremost message. And to fix things, we have first to look inwards. We have to think of the old Greek wisdom, know thyself. So introspection is my thing. And I think that as Arabs, we've either been too lazy or too complicit or found it too easy to blame the others and invite others to fix our problems without ourselves doing or meeting the others halfway. And the others here can be anyone. It doesn't have to be Israel only. Like even when the U.S. came to Iraq, we were whining and complaining and we did not do what was required for us to stand up. And standing up is is my message and it has been my message. And I've been trying to stand up for the past 20 years. So when everyone is pushing and fighting with Israel over the US or, or imperialism or decolonization or you name it, I'm doing the other part. I'm just trying to push myself and, and other Arabs to do what we should do for things to work out. And you're doing an extraordinary job and I commend you for it. And I salute thank you. you and thank you. We've learned from so many crises in the past that silence is complicity and it is our greatest enemy. And so for every person like you who stands up and speaks out, you carry really the weight of the world on your shoulders and you're doing an exemplary job of it. And it takes courage and you should be commended. But what I want to ask you about now is what are they saying? They, as if the Arab world is a monolith. We both know it's highly complex, but there are important voices and I'd like you to suggest, tell our listeners, in your view, what are the most important voices in the Arab world today and what are they saying? Well, you have two big Arab blocs. You have one that's under the influence of Iran, and that's Iraq, Lebanon, 
uh, Yemen to an extent, Syria, a few other places. And then you have one that's under the influence of the moderate Arab governments, or let's say that are led by Arab countries in the Gulf. Iran is saying the only way to get out of this whole mess is to keep on fighting until we destroy Israel, and then everything will be straightened down. And what the other guys are saying, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, um, Bahrain, and to a lesser extent, Jordan and Egypt, they're saying the only alternative to this mess is peace. So these two camps, and of course, I'm in the peace uh, camp. Hussein, before you continue, where would you put Qatar? Because I don't think you mentioned Qatar. The biggest problem about Qatar is that they have two faces. So Al Jazeera is, is Iran, and their embassy in D.C. is something else. So they want to be U.S.'s allies, and at the same time, they have a different face. And, and that's really bad for them, for us, and for everybody else. And I think overall, their role is destructive. Their populism, Al Jazeera, is doing worst job I can think of to dumb down uh, the Arab populace, just to convince them that the only thing we can do is to revive Islam and, and conquer the world. So uh, that's a very destructive message. What's happening now is that you have political Islam, which is Hamas is Sunni, but now it's been caucusing with the Shia for some time, Shia being Iran. And political Islam wants to destroy and fight, and the others oppose that. Now, what is that the moderate camp believes, number one, they hate Hamas and political Islam, and they believe that Israel is going to destroy Hamas anyway, so why side with Israel, right? You can have your cake and eat it too. Israel will destroy Hamas, you denounce Israel, you get rid of Hamas, and everybody else still like you. So that's what from the moderate Arab camp and especially Jordan and Egypt. Not as much the Gulf, but Jordan and Egypt, they're being as populist as it can get, and they know that this is a war to finish off Hamas. And they probably like it. Um, not probably, they're certainly like it. Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com all one word. Now, back to the podcast. Can you just break down the Gulf a little more granularly um, and just briefly tell us, because I've seen uh, statements emanating from Saudi Arabia that I would prefer not to have seen. Just differentiate between Saudi, Bahrain, and uh, UAE, please. Okay. First of all, the GCC has these three countries in addition to Oman and Kuwait. Oman is a country that that just does not intervene in these kind of affairs. They just try to be nice with everyone. Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Hamas. Kuwait is currently sinking into the Islamist camp. It used to be on the other side, but the leadership has been weakening and the Islamists are taking over and they're getting closer to Qatar and the Islamists and Hamas. Qatar, we know Qatar. Now, the three remaining ones, UAE and Bahrain have peace treaties with Israel. And UAE especially, they've been the most mature in dealing with this. 
that they understand they're walking a fine line. They don't want to go against Arab consensus, but at the same time, they're not shying away from putting out a statement saying that the president of UAE, Sheikh Hamad bin Zayed, called Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So they're not shying away or hiding this kind of news. And that's, to me, that's really mature, whether they take Israel's side or not. Saudi Arabia is not there yet, but I think they understand, or at least the message they've been putting out is that after war, there has to be peace. Israel can't just keep on fighting until forever. The day after Israel takes out Hamas, someone should step up and, and put peace together. And I think they understand that they'll be leading on this role. And a week ago, we saw an editorial in Riyadh, which is a, a daily newspaper in Saudi Arabia. And the headline was a message of peace. Another thing, if you look at the statements of Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Bahrain, even though they support Palestinians and they oppose the death of civilians in Gaza, at the same time, you'll be hard-pressed to see them denounce Israel outright. So they would call on the world to stop massacres. They wouldn't just call them Israeli massacres or they wouldn't call the Israeli government a government of criminals like the other guys. So if you read between the lines, you will see that these guys, they're trying to help. They understand that peace is the alternative to war. And they understand, had we managed to put Hamas under our thumb, we wouldn't be here in the first place. So they understand that we're here partially or mostly because of our own failure, the PA failure of controlling Hamas and its militants and itself. So this is briefly how the Gulf looks like. To what degree, I mean, there was tremendous optimism in the weeks and days leading up to this very dark day, October 7th, with respect to momentum for a Saudi-Israeli normalization agreement, peace agreement. And to what degree do you think that Iran and Hamas and Hezbollah were reacting to that? They wanted to destroy Saudi Arabia's credibility and force them to pick a side, so to speak. Do you think that played a role in this crisis? Yes. And I think we have them on the record saying it. We have a readout of a phone call between the top aide to Khamenei, former Foreign Minister Ali Akbar Wilayati, he calls the Syrian Foreign Minister Faisal that, and he specifically outlines, and this was probably a day or two into the war, and he said some countries are trying to build a corridor from India to the Mediterranean through this fragile and volatile Middle East, and these countries don't know what they're doing, and some countries are trying to normalize relations with Israel and they should learn from what happened to other governments that did that. And by other governments, he meant Sadat, who was killed, and the Shah of Iran, whose government crumbled, and this Islamist regime took over. They spelled it out. They said, no corridor, and we're going to turn the tables. And this is as honest and frank as it can get from one of the top leaders of Iran. And then you look at everything else, and for example, today, there was a summit in, in Egypt, and the summit was called the Peace Summit. And if you look up all the accounts from the IRGC, the Iranians, pro-Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, all of them are against this summit. So you have to notice here that all these guys who take to the streets, uh, carrying Palestinian flags, cheering for free Palestine. If you look at all these guys, none of them utters the word peace. So they want the war to stop, to spare Hamas. It's bad faith. They don't want peace. 
And unfortunately, many in the West don't notice that. They say, look at the Arab street. It's, everything is boiling up and they're angry. Fine, they're angry, but they're not saying we want peace. They're just saying don't kill out Hamas and let Hamas get away without being punished after it had killed 1,400 Israelis. So if you understand the Arab world and can see these nuances, you will see that there's one camp that's trying to push toward peace and the other camp is totally opposed to it. And to the untrained eye, they look one and it's and the same. No, you've done a really masterful job of teasing that out and helping people to understand. And I thank you for that. I want to talk a bit about the human catastrophe on the ground, not just on the Israeli side, but in the Gaza Strip, which nobody wants and is preventable. We have many uh, Palestinian civilians in the Gaza Strip who have been given repeated warnings by the IDF to evacuate. I'd like you to comment on reports that we've heard and seen of Hamas preventing civilians from evacuating, and also Egypt blocking the Gaza Strip and not allowing them to seek even temporary refuge in Egypt where they will be safe. This is just incomprehensible to me, incomprehensible. And then, of course, though, in my view, Hamas does not really care about their civilians, and they actually would probably invite maximum casualty and suffering in order to then justify further attack on Israel and really stoke the extremists in Iran and the corridor you've just been talking about. What do you think is going on in terms of uh, civilian suffering and Hamas? You know what? This has been my line since the Hezbollah-Israel war in 2006, which I oppose clearly. And at the time, I used to say, it doesn't make sense that the so-called resistance survives and the ones that resistance was supposed to protect die. So if this is resistance to protect, then it has failed. And the same thing is happening in Gaza now. So Hamas is supposed to protect civilians, but hides behind them and underneath their buildings and jeopardizes their safety. So if you are resistance and you want to spare your own people's lives, you get out and fight or you surrender. But this way that, you know, you kill Israelis and you say international law doesn't count, and then you hide behind civilians and now you want international law to protect you. So the whole model that Hamas putting does not work for anyone. If Israel lets Hamas get away with what it did, and survive, there's no guarantee that Hamas won't come back. And by won't come back, I don't only mean massacring another 1,400 Israelis. I also mean more Palestinians will die in the coming round. So this is the fifth or sixth round of, of war between Israel and Hamas. And it, had we gotten rid of Hamas on, on the first war, then I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have this war. So Hamas is a drag on both sides. It kills Israelis, then it causes Palestinians to die on the rebound. And this is an argument that myself and a few people like me in their world have been putting out all the time. And I, I know, especially in Lebanon, because I know the Lebanese voices against Hezbollah have been getting louder and louder. And they're saying, we don't want to die. Even if we support Palestinians, whatever they're doing, we don't want to be part of this war. So this is an, the argument that we're making. And it goes back to the point where we're saying, we want peace and that the guys are saying the only way for peace is just to get rid of Israel through more war. And my heart goes out to the Lebanese who have suffered so much for so long. And their country, as you well know, is more than ravaged. And we need to just stop this madness. 
carrying on with what we're seeing in terms of Hamas treatment of civilians, Palestinian civilians in the Gaza Strip, they're also holding, we don't really know how many, but around 200 civilians who they abducted from Israel violently, and they're holding them hostage. We think some may have already been executed, but we really have no concrete evidence. Do you think they have a plan? What are they doing? Do you think that they had a plan? They've got 200 people. What's your best uh, analysis of this? Let me start by saying this. Hamas does not respect the value of human life whatsoever. And its first massacre started by killing 450 Palestinians from Fatah and the Palestinian Orphan in 2007 when it took over the Gaza Strip. So an organization that's willing to kill 450 Palestinians does not care about 1,400 Israelis or another 200 Israelis taken as hostages. So this death cult called Hamas, I think they'll just do whatever is in their best interest. If they think that they can use these hostages to bargain, they'll use them to bargain. During the early days of the war, they put out a few crazy ideas, including killing a hostage every few hours if Israel starts war, but then they walk this back. They put out the idea that they want to use them as a human shield so that Israel would not strike. And Israel said, we don't care, not about the hostages, but about the Hamas tactics. And, and Hamas walked back that tactic too. So what they're trying to do now is just to uh, do some manipulation by releasing two hostages and by trying to separate between the dual nationals and the Israeli only. And all of these are psychological games and, and manipulations. So I, I, I don't see Hamas being rational. And I understand that the Israeli government doesn't want to uh, talk to them over this because it doesn't make sense that you talk to someone you promised to destroy. You can't talk to them now and then destroy them once you're done talking. And, and that doesn't make sense by any code of honor or law or good measure. So I think it's unfortunate that many of these hostages are just non-combatants, civilians, and I've seen stories in the Hebrew press about them. Many of them were activists, pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian, pro-you name it. And many of them used to drive Gazan patients from Eretz to clinics in Israel to get medical care. And these people are now kidnapped and their houses burned down. This is how messy this is. And this is how unfortunate these people found their, th themselves. And I wish there was a silver bullet that can save this situation and get these 200 people out. But unfortunately, we're dealing with death cult that doesn't value any, any human life. I want to just add a point to, to that because many of the, particularly the first wave of so-called Hamas warriors who stormed into Israel and were instructed very specifically by their commanders to inflict as much suffering and terror as possible. Many of those people also, just the day before, had worked alongside those Israelis in their fields. They knew these communities. They ate at their tables. They patted their kids' heads. They went back to the people they knew and looked them in the eye and slaughtered them. That is a next level of evil. But let's park that for now. With respect to the plight of the hostages and the negotiation, you made a very interesting point. You said you can't pledge to destroy Hamas, but also try to negotiate. But the fact is, we know that Qatar is the middle country right now between 
Israel and Hamas and that Qatar Secretary of State Blinken made it very clear that we owe deep gratitude to Qatar for playing that role. So I think that it's the Middle East. It's a little messier than perhaps what you conveyed a few moments ago, that Israel will do everything it can, I believe, to get those hostages out with Qatari intervention. But unfortunately, at the end of the day, Israel is being left alone with American support, thank God, but Israel is being left alone to do the dirty work and destroy Hamas. So look, if I were, if I had someone taken hostage with Hamas, I'd be doing all I can to try to get my government to get them out. But now it's not only these people's lives that's at stake. Every Israeli now has a neighbor or a brother or a son or a father who's camped outside Gaza and ready to take Hamas out, risking their own lives. So these 200 Israelis are not the ones, are not the only Israelis who, whose lives are at risk. The whole nation's existence is at risk. So I'm not trying to belittle the importance of the lives of these people, but this war is much bigger than 200 Israelis, it's just like about 9 million Israelis. So if I were one of the families, I'd be concerned, but I wouldn't want to pressure my own government to grant Hamas whatever they want. I wouldn't give Hamas the tool to blackmail my own government and, and to slow down things. I'd just say, okay, we're like everybody else. If every other Israeli is going to risk their lives, then we're risking the lives of our loved ones. It's unfortunate and it's hard, but that's how war goes. You just stick out your neck and hope for the best. And this, I totally agree with you. And this is a war on the West. Make no mistake. Anyone listening, Absolutely. anyone out there, this is, we're just, Israel and Jews always get throttled and massacred first, but they're coming to a city near you next. This is just Absolutely. the first stop. So on that note, I'd like to go a little kind of parochial and just finish off with asking you about, especially in North America, but also the UK, these very vocal, very aggressive, outspoken, left-leaning cults of insanity. I don't know what to call them. The people we see demonstrating, the people we see tearing down posters supporting the release of Israeli hostages, the people calling for the destruction of Israel. Um, I think that it's fair to say that they, and this is being kind, that they are absolutely ignorant, willfully ignorant of what Hamas is and stands for. This is the coalition of leftish, socially progressive causes do they know what Hamas and Iran and Hezbollah does to the LGBT community? Do they know any of this? Help our listeners understand this insanity that has taken over our streets. That's the irony. You know, on Twitter or now X, I sometimes get lectured by a John Smith who lives here or in Canada or in Ireland telling me what Hamas is and is not. And I'm thinking, I spent my youth reporting from Ain al-Halwi refugee camps of Palestinians in, in Lebanon. I know this thing inside out, and I know what's good and what's not. I'm not waiting for someone on Harvard campus or some professor on some Princeton campus to tell me what works and what doesn't work. And it's condescending. It's condescending to people from over there, just telling them what they should do. You're taking away their agency, and this is exactly the imperialism that they claim that they're fighting. We're decolonizing you by telling you to change what you're doing, but we're still telling you what to do, 
right? And it's not, okay, we're not telling you, you choose whether you want to be pro-West or against the West. No, you have to be against the West because we, the West, are telling you to do that. So I think it can do everyone a great service if they just relax, let the ones who know what they're saying and what they're doing say and do, and just give credit to those who spent time there, who know the region better than they do, and who are here because they can be free to say what they, you know, because if you're there, you know what's going on. You can't really say what's going on because of all the bullies and the social shaming and the physical harassment. But if you're from there and you're here, then you know what's going on and you can say it. And, and I'm, I'm one of those lucky people who are from there and I'm here and I know what I'm talking about and I'm totally free to say it. And dozens of my friends who still live there send messages of support, say, this is exactly right. Thank you for saying it, but we can't say it. Hussein Abdul Hussein from Washington, D.C., thank you so much for being strong, for being a voice of clarity, principle, decency, humanity, and for standing up for the West and for your fellow countrymen in the Middle East who cannot speak out. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. We'll keep the dispatches coming as frequently as we can. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment, rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel. It is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv.